Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 74, Fly Em All. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So if you're new to the show, we bring in NASA experts to talk about all the different parts about our space agency. Sometimes we get lucky enough to bring in astronauts and talk about their story. So today we're talking with Anne McLean. She's a U.S. astronaut and an Army colonel, and she recently launched to the International Space Station this December 2018 for her very first space flight. We talked about her education studying mechanical and aeronautical engineering, her time in the United States Army flying 20 different rotary and fixed-wing aircraft, and her training and expectations before her first trip to space. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Colonel Anne McLean. Enjoy. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I kind of want to start with your life because Spokane, Washington, I actually don't know much about it. What was it like growing up there? Uh, Spokane, Washington is uh, nestled in eastern Washington. We like to think it's the uh, best kept secret, but I think the secret's getting out. Um, it's a beautiful city, very outdoorsy, all four seasons. So in the summer, we were always out playing in the parks and the pools. And in the winter, we were always out skiing and sledding. And uh, it was just a great place to grow up. So did you, were you more of an outdoorsy kind of person then? We were always outdoors. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> yes, always outdoors and just pick an activity and go. Okay. Now, Rugby was one of your top activities that I saw. Were you? Did you start young with that, or did you kind of get I don't know forced into it? So I both. I started. Both? Okay. I got forced into it at a young age. Uh, oh, there you go. You know, so I was about 18 years old, and I was walking around the campus of Gonzaga University in Spokane, and I saw a group of people playing a very interesting-looking sport. <laughs> and I, I kind of approached and asked what it was about. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was starting a rugby match the next day. And that started off my career. And I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, did you want to do rugby full time or did you have something else that kind of sparked at a young age? So I played rugby throughout uh, college. So shortly thereafter, I went off to West Point and uh, I, we didn't have a team there at that time. And so, you know, when we had time off, I would go find tournaments and just kind of play pickup. But uh. I really got into it seriously uh, when I was in graduate school. Uh, after I graduated West Point, I went to England. And in England, uh, rugby is much more common and a lot more competitive. And so oh. I was fortunate to play at a very high level. And uh, that's where I started playing. A lot of rugby training for it specifically, and then at the end of that two years, I was uh, actually in the middle. I was fortunate enough to be selected for the U.S. national team. Oh, very awesome. But you went to uh, West Point first, so I'm guessing you went there for, um, it says engineering, right? So you were. when did you start getting interested in engineering? That's correct. So I was interested in engineering. I knew I was going to do something in math and engineering from a young age. Oh, okay. And um, I, I've always been drawn toward maths and science. Uh, it's It's been not only more interesting, but I'm a lot better at it. Um, I'm not uh, the best essay writer. Uh, <laughs> So, um, and I remember when I went, uh, one of my teachers said, you know, mathematics is the study of what is and engineering is the study of what could be. Oh, I like and that. I, I thought that was really neat. And it kind of inspired me to, hey, I can actually contribute to something and create something new, but still use 
you know, math and hard science as a basis. Were you a tinkerer then? Did you play with a lot of stuff in, in a, a little bit, okay. uh, a little bit. I was, uh, I, I would say I started out more theoretical. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I really enjoyed equations. I'm a huge nerd. In fact, in sixth grade, <laughs> I asked, uh, for my birthday, I asked every single one of my friends for a calculator and I got like six or seven <laughs> calculators for my birthday. And my mom thought I was crazy. She said, why, why are you getting all these calculators? Well, that's all I wanted. And I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> just um, to test them out, yeah, like see which calculator was yeah, the best. I, I don't know. I thought I'm going to get six of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so so this was interesting. You went to the military academy for West Point, and then you went to England. You said, and you said rugby was a lot bigger there. But but why did you decide to go to England? Was it just did you want to travel, do something a little bit more adventurous? So actually, at West Point, all I wanted to do was get to flight school. Um, oh, but flight. I was uh, I was. I did well enough that I applied for a few scholarships, and I was very fortunate to receive the Marshall Scholarship. And the Marshall Scholarship is for two years of postgrad study right after college. And okay. so instead of going to flight school right after West Point, I was commissioned as an officer, but I spent my first two years of my Army career uh, in graduate school in England. Okay, going for that higher education and engineering, That's too. correct. Yeah. And uh, I, th I think there was also something about international relations, too? Yes, I did uh, two master's degrees in those, uh, in those two years, so one in aerospace engineering, and then I did international relations because I really started to get interested in uh, you know, how we govern worldwide, especially living in England and seeing the U.S. from an outside perspective and understanding that we are a piece of the puzzle that fits into this greater community. And, and uh, you know, the, the basis that I had and what I was really interested in was engineering, but international relations was a way for me to understand, you know, how do we employ solutions across the world? How do we better living conditions across the world? How do we share appropriate technologies across the world? Uh, and I really wanted to look at that, so. Oh, creating new things and sharing things, but from that broad perspective. That's right. But it, you mentioned flying, so I'm guessing flying was also something you were very interested in. Probably. Flying is definitely yeah. what I wanted to do ever since I was very young. Uh, flying and being an astronaut, uh, I never really considered any other career path. Oh, wow, okay. So was there, was it like a moment or was it just, I don't know. It was just something you always had. It was always something I always wanted to do oh, okay. uh, from a young age. I think it was when I went off to preschool. I told my mom that I was going to school to learn to be an astronaut. So it was right. the seed must have been planted quite early. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I, I think getting into flying is just something. As I, as I was growing up, that's what I was really interested in. I, I particularly remember when Top Gun came out, and I watched that movie probably twice a day for an entire <laughs> summer until my older brother actually took our VHS tape and broke it in half because he was so tired of watching it. Really? <laughs> so you really wanted to fly? I definitely did. Uh, so it, you had to go to school, right? That was part of the that was part of the um, uh, scholarship. Was you had to go to school, but then afterwards, okay, now you can start flying. That's correct. So I branched aviation from West Point, and then I did my two years at university uh, uh, for post grad, and then I came back to Army Flight School at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Was that your first time in the cockpit, or did you get like a little bit of practice with someone taking you around beforehand? So I had been, uh, I, I was an exchange cadet when I was at West Point. I spent a semester at the Air Force Academy, and that was my first flying lesson. We learned to fly oh. gliders and solo in gliders, uh, but as far as actually uh, getting into a powered aircraft cockpit <laughs> and learning how to fly, that was uh, at Army Flight School. Did the glider get you hooked then? It, it, it definitely satiated my desire to fly. <laughs> it, uh, it was really interesting. Cool. So I think some of the first things you flied, and correct me if I'm wrong, was helicopters, right? That is correct. So how come helicopters? So the Army has some fixed wing and it has mostly helicopters. And what I really looked at was, uh, and I got a great piece of advice that said, uh, 
you know, don't look at the airframe that you're going to fly. Look at the mission that they do. Hmm. Uh, you know, so many people look at the different airframes and they say, yeah. well, I want to fly a jet or I want to fly a transport. I want to fly a helicopter. And they said, look at the mission that you're going to do, because throughout the course of your career, that aircraft will probably change. Uh, you know, the, the military retires aircraft or gets new ones or tests new things. And, you know, so you're going to change. But the mission you're going to do is going to stay the same. And I was really interested in the reconnaissance and attack mission of the military. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I chose the airframe. I liked the community. I liked all the pilots that I'd met that had flown it. And it's just what interested me. What's it like to fly a helicopter? I mean, I've flown in a helicopter one time, but I don't mm -hmm. know what the difference is. I mean, I've flown so many different commercial airliners from one place to another. But what's it like? I mean, you have fixed wing experience, too. So the difference there. I, I think the difference for me is a helicopter, you really, f I don't feel like I get in a helicopter and fly it. I feel like I put the helicopter on and I fly, oh. you know, and uh, it's just kind of the tool to make me levitate. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a freedom to it. It's, it's almost like scuba diving in the air. You can go in any direction. You can look anywhere. Hmm. You can do a huge variety of missions. Um, so there's a freedom to it. I remember the first time I took a fixed wing lesson. I had been flying helicopters for quite a while. I had maybe 1,500 hours in helicopters, and I took a fixed wing lesson. And I remember almost feeling that, like claustrophobic because I was like, I have, to, I have to keep flying forward. And oh my gosh, if we have an emergency, I need, a, I need to find a runway or a really long area. And, and it was a weird feeling to me. I didn't really expect to feel that way, but um, it was kind of uncomfortable ha huh. having flown an aircraft that I could put down you know, anywhere if I had an issue. <laughs> um, you know, and I've, I've obviously gotten used to it over the years flying both uh, fixed wing and rotary, but um, that was one of my first impressions of fixed wing. Wow. It was, I, I can't even imagine that because I'm so not used to helicopters. You know, I'm just used to just going forward, but right. not even flying it, just flying inside of it, I right. guess. Yep. Um, so this is an interesting number, 20 different aircraft. Is that right? How, how come you wanted to fly so many different aircraft? <laughs> so I'd only flown uh, maybe four different aircraft before test pilot school. But one of the big oh. things that as a test pilot that they expose you to all these different aircraft so that you have kind of a, an opinion when somebody, you know, if you only fly one aircraft and somebody walks up and says, hey, what do you think about this modification we're going to do? Well, the only frame of reference you would ever have is that one aircraft you've flown. Right. And so, you know, does it feel weird when you're flying this modification because it's something different than what you're used to? Or is it because that modification is not right? And so what they do is they expose you to all these different aircraft and helicopters that fly all different ways. They have different characteristics. They have different... Uh, you know, reactions to the controls because they want you to really experience everything that could be and, mm. and back you off of that perch of only having kind of a singular experience going into it. Okay. So the more they expose you to different aircraft, the more you have a better understanding of the test pilot mentality, that frame of reference that helps you to make better decisions on, oh, maybe you should do this to the aircraft to make it better and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah, and, and getting, getting good ideas from other aircraft, like, hey, I never thought of that and I really yeah. like it. Um, you know, it just gives you a better frame of reference, but that really translates to everything. You know, if we only ever come from our singular perspective, then, and, and we hear a different idea even, you know, is do we not like that idea because it's different or, or is it truly bad? Well, if we get out and we really experience it, we look at things from different people's perspectives, you just, you know, you can, you, you become a much better um, solver of problems and, 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 a lot better, a lot more able to look at things from different perspectives. Yeah, it se and it seems like you wanted to get as much of that perspective as possible because not only were you flying so many different types of aircraft, you had a lot of different jobs with, with aircraft and flying. You were an instructor, you were a pilot in command. You kind of hopped around a little bit and got different perspectives. What was it like in each of those roles? 
Uh, you know, I, from an early age, I, I, like I said, I liked flying and, you know, I flew, I learned to fly helicopters and I went, started in the army at mm -hmm. a time when we were in combat. And so that was, a, that was our role was uh, scout reconnaissance, uh, helicopters in combat. And, you know, there's a lot of responsibility placed on a scout helicopter pilot, um, the Kai warrior pilots, and we take a lot of pride in it, but we're somewhat the quarterbacks of the battlefield and, and we have very large decisions being driven on what we can see. You know, we'll go out and look at a certain area and we'll relay that information back uh, to the ground forces. And you start to realize, the biggest thing I realized was, you know, this isn't about flying helicopters, this is about having lives in your hands and making decisions where, where other people's lives depend on it. And that is a lot of responsibility. And so each um, step I took in flying, whether it was becoming the pilot in command or becoming an instructor and having to teach the gravity of that responsibility to young students, um, it really kind of shaped who I am today. Okay. So is that perspective that you really wanted to share the seriousness of, of what you were about to do as a pilot to, in order to learn that kind of aircraft? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and the seriousness of what can happen if you, if you, you know, if you don't think about things or if you take unnecessary risks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's very real consequences. And, you know, and we've seen it, if you if you fly long enough, you, you've lost friends and you learn lessons that you never wanted to learn, um, but are, uh, you know, they're really part of who I am now. It's, you know, we fly the T-38s now and even going to space flight. I still look for all those same things and I still approach my job and my mission with the same diligence of understanding the risks, not taking unnecessary risks, understanding the systems that we're flying, understanding the people that we're flying with in order to safely employ uh, these aircraft and spacecraft now. Sounds like these are the uh, kind of essential qualities of a good pilot is that sense of responsibility, that sense of diligence, that sense of uh, just knowing what you're doing and and having a clear understanding of the responsibility of what you're flying. Uh, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite quotes actually is that uh, um, a superior pilot uses his superior judgment to keep him out of situations that require the use of his superior skills. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I followed along, but yeah, I get it. <laughs> yes, much, much simpler put, we, we often say that there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I get that, yeah. All right, so you, you want it to be more of the, towards the old pilot, I guess. Well, not to say, but really to just to say that you are responsible and you're going to take care of the of the aircraft. Yes, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I enjoy it very much too. There are just moments <laughs> where it's just pure fun. Um, but in order to enjoy that pure fun, you got to do the right things first. All right, so I'm, I'm going through the different types of aircraft, and I'm definitely not going to list them all. But one of the ones that stuck out to me was the C-12, is it Huron, King Air? Mm -hmm. King Air. Did you, um, uh, were taught by a, a pilot, Mike Jordan? How'd you know that? Um, that's my uncle, and he says hi. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was. That's, that's very funny. Um, and and it's, it's funny that because I was actually just talking about him. You can tell him that. Really? Uh, because he has this incredible way of teaching where he is very charismatic, and he has this great voice that I still hear sometimes when I'm flying. And, you know, I'll never forget when, uh, you know, one of his demonstrations goes, oh, what am I going to do if I look out the window and my wing's on fire? And we're like, uh, you know, we start going through the procedure. He goes, I'm going to fly the airplane. I'm going to fly the airplane. He goes, if everything falls off, I'm going to fly the airplane. He said, that's what, it, that's what 
everybody fails to remember to do is to fly the aircraft aircraft uh. when everything else is going crazy. He said, you know, you're, you're going to, most people mess up in an accident or in an emergency situation, not because of the emergency, but because they're not flying the airplane. And just the way that he said it always stuck with me. And <laughs> and believe it or not, actually about a couple years after I took that training, I was flying with another pilot and he said almost the same thing. And I said, did you fly with Mike Jordan in, in Dothan? He said, yes, he was my instructor. And I would say, yes, that's, that's his thing. And uh, so he is, he's a very influential, very good instructor. Wow, all right. I'm going to tell him that, uh, that we talked here for sure. Um, so you f- were flying all kinds of different aircraft. You definitely knew that you wanted to be in the air. Um, but you also said that being an astronaut was part of your career, um, I guess, path from even a young age. So at what point did you start considering, I'm going to start applying to be an astronaut? Uh, I started applying in 2009, and that was when I um, was fully qualified to, to actually have been, or I thought maybe I could be competitive, it was 2009. Mm. Um, so, and I was selected in 2013 on my second time. So. Okay, mm. okay. So you, it took a little bit, but yeah, you knew that, I mean, with, with this, with how many aircraft you uh, were flying and how much experience you have, uh, no doubt that you became an astronaut. Do you remember the call? Oh, I remember the call like it was yesterday. It was it was very overwhelming, and um, I think by the time you get to that point in the selection process, you know the selection process is just over eighteen months. So mm-hmm. it's it's a long time from when you put in your application, you go through a couple rounds of interviews and uh, lots of medical tests, and um, you've traveled to Houston a couple times. But the other thing you've done is you've met everybody else that's in the top group. And so in your first interview, you know it's in the top hundred people, and then the second interview, it's the top fifty people, and you know, especially in that last round, you meet everybody and all of a sudden everybody around you, you're thinking, wow, they would make great astronauts. And, and I like this person so much that if they got selected and I didn't, I would genuinely be happy for them. Like, okay. And so you get to this point where, you know, not only are you, do you still think that, you know, nobody ever gets selected, it's not going to be me, but then you meet these other people that are just incredible. So when I got to that point in the selection that they were making phone calls, uh, I don't. I I was completely prepared to not be selected, hmm. but I had not really thought about like what if I am, you know. <laughs> it's just not something I l- allowed myself to ponder. And so when it happened, it was so overwhelming. Wow. Um, I remember I just I dropped to my knees. I couldn't even talk. I couldn't even breathe. Um, it was one of the most overwhelming experiences that I've ever had. It was this culmination of something I'd wanted since I was three, and it actually came true. Wow. All right, so what was next? Where were, where were you at the time, and what did you need to do to get to Houston and start working? Um, so everybody always says, what was your first phone call after you got selected? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, at, uh, I was at Test Pilot School, so I was at Pax River, Maryland with the Navy, and I was uh, preparing to move to Huntsville, Alabama to work at the Redstone Test Center with the Army. And so my household goods, you know, everything had been packed up. And so the first person I called after I got selected was the movers to tell them not to take my stuff to Alabama. Uh, <laughs> okay, so it was it was more of a strategic call. It was not, a strategic not, call, not, yes. Not and then I, and then I got the other phone calls out of the way. So. Okay, all right. So then you said, all right, no, don't move to to Maryland. We're we're I need. I'm going to Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then you finally get down here, and it's it's training time. That first that first week at NASA, the introduction to starting to train to begin an astronaut candidate and go mm-hmm. through those. How was that? It was great meeting the other seven uh, people that were in my class. Was great. We'd actually started emailing right away. We oh, cool. we instantly became friends. And <clears throat> you know something that that is interesting, and I actually have a better perspective on now five years later, is that these aren't just people that you meet and that you're going to work with or that you're going to go to space with these are people that you do life with 
And we worked together for so long that it's interesting for me to look back even at that first week, which is now five years ago. And, and these people have become some of my closest friends. You know, we really know everything about each other. We can work with each other. And, you know, any one of them, I'm very comfortable going to space with and, and knowing how to get along with them, how to work with them. And we adjust our, the ways that we work uh, with, with based on who's there because we just know each other so well. We know how to, how to bring the best out in each other and we know what, what each other's limitations are. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I think by design, you know, that's why we trained so much together. Um, but it's really neat five years later to say, hey, wait, it, it really does work because we really are that close. Yeah. And now you're all starting to f fly, right? Um, so so th thinking about your training, coming back down to earth, um, the, you know, the first few things that you were doing, the one thing that sticks out to me is the T-38 because you've been flying so many different aircraft. How was that? How was, how was flying in that? So the T-38 is fast, <laughs> um, and, and when you're flying, you don't notice it, but when you're flying down the runway, you definitely notice it. You know, I fly a helicopter that uh, when you touch down, you're at zero airspeed, and if you're anywhere near the ground, you're, you know, you're less than 30, and this is an aircraft that's touching down 140, 150 miles an hour. So yeah. I will have to say it took me a long time to get used to the runway part of the T-38. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and I can definitely fly better than I can drive an aircraft. So, uh, <laughs> but once you're in the air, it's, uh, I mean, it's just a fun aircraft to fly. It's a demanding aircraft craft um as a as a helicopter pilot i fly in the back seat so i fly with uh with other pilots and uh um you know it's it's a neat experience it's uh it's pretty neat to be able to go halfway across the country in in less than an hour yeah what do they tell you about the experience of the t-38 and how it prepares you for space well i think uh, much like you know we were talking about some of my experience in aviation and the lessons that you learn mm -hmm. and you know risk management and 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 working things out as a team in order to uh, accept the appropriate level of risk for everybody's comfort level. Uh, those are the kind of things that you work out in the T-38. And, yeah. <clears throat> you know, and so some people that could, don't come in with an uh, aviation background uh, learn those lessons in the T-38. And then those of us that come from various different backgrounds, we bring totally different perspectives into the cockpit. So it's not only learning the T-38, but it's, it's learning to work with the other individual that's sitting in your cockpit mm -hmm. and how they think. And that's one of the places that we really get to know each other is, are you a risk taker or a risk mitigator? You know, what's your comfort, comfort level? What's your skill level? How much information can you process at, at any given time? Um, you know, how easily do you get overwhelmed? We learn those things about each other in that aircraft. Yeah. So it's not just an individual experience. It's very much a group experience. It, the, yes, absolutely. It is by design. It's a, it's a team experience. Because the interesting thing about space flight is, you know, when I fly helicopters, we flew five times a week. Oh. And it, when we f do a space flight, we fly once every five years, and it's a different crew every time. Mm -hmm. And so you have basically one shot. And when you get in there, you don't know if it's going to be completely nominal or if you're going to need to address an emergency situation that comes up. And if an emergency situation comes up, that can't be when you're starting to learn about how your teammates handle emergencies. That has to be the time when you are performing. And so the T-38 sim and simulations all, per all uh, contribute to us being able to work as a team on when it's game day. So the T-38 in the spectrum of all the things you had to do to train, to, to become an astronaut, from astronaut candidate to astronaut, was that one of the easier things or was that still pretty difficult? Uh, I would say for me it was one of the easier things, but okay. what, what was interesting is that uh, each of us came from different backgrounds, so yeah. each, each of us had a part of the training that was easier for us than others. So what was more challenging for you? Um, you, you know, I had never even taken a biology class or a science class, so oh. when, it, when we switched over to doing a lot of the life sciences, 
Um, not only did I find it was it was new and it was a challenging because I just had no background in it, but it's also super interesting. Um, <laughs> and maybe because I mean it, it's pretty neat to be able to learn biology for the first time from NASA, you know, from NASA scientists. And so you're, it is definitely the varsity team. Um, and but it's really interesting. You know, we got to sequence DNA and everything, and it was just something. I, it took me a little while to wrap my head around, but. Uh, but then you have, you know, classmates like my classmate Jessica Meir, and she, she, that was her whole background was science. And so she was, yeah. you know, she's, she's at this level where she could just really make it interesting for me and teach me it. And, uh, but we all kind of help each other in different areas uh, that we don't have as much background in. Yeah. So, so for that, that you didn't have a more background in biology and, and kind of learning it along the way, did it, what kind of, I guess, perspectives opened up in that training? Did you kind of realize like, oh, now I understand why we're doing this a lot in space or, or anything like that? Yeah, you know, what's interesting to me is I've always thought of math and engineering as, you know, it's black and white. There's really no gray pl space. You know, you, you do an equation and the answer is 14 or it's not 14 and you're wrong. <laughs> you know, and, and what I realized was, and I kind of saw a lot of the science is a little more fuzzy and a little more gray area. Yeah. But what I realized is they have a whole new set of equations and a whole new set of defining parameters and reality that actually make it black and white also you know there's huh. only so many ways that cells behave and multiply and um, and so I thought that was really interesting because it, it took some things that to me weren't as concrete and actually made them a little more concrete huh I've never heard that perspective before because I always hear like science is you know you do hear that you hypothesize something and then you can kind of guess on which direction it's going but it does make sense that during that process you do things to make it as concrete as possible so you can say a definitive statement about science. It's absolutely right. And I was I was really impressed by the rigidity with which they approach problems. It's not it's not just a hypothesis and guess like maybe I did in high school science, you know, and yeah. come up with something. It is uh, they are very disciplined and their peer reviews are are incredible and um, yeah, it just it it opened up a whole new world to me that I saw. And actually, I told Jessica at one point, I said, uh, man, I could have done this my whole life and been really happy also. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, so how about um, spacewalk training? Uh, are you doing that, I guess, in the neutral buoyancy laboratory? Looking forward to that? We are, yeah. The uh, I think I've had about 40 runs, 40, 50 runs now Whoa, in, the, in the NBL. And um, that's definitely one of the areas I'm looking most forward to. Oh, really? Yeah. It's. Uh, I always say it's actually most like flying a scout helicopter. Uh, than anything else I've ever done because you know it's not it, the spacesuit is not this outfit that you put on it is like a small all-encapsulated spaceship that you're getting into and you're flying and there's a communication system and there's a water system and there's a power system and there's an air system and all these systems have to be monitored just like in an aircraft and then you are working with a teammate who also has their all their systems to monitor, just like in an aircraft. You know, we always fly two aircraft together as a team. So now it's that same thing, and we're accomplishing a mission. We have to make the suit kind of disappear and use it as a tool to accomplish a mission and maintain situational awareness over both the systems and the overall mission and what those priorities are. Uh, and so I find it to be a physical and a mental challenge that I really enjoy. Yeah, but it sounds like it's a lot of the same logic that you were describing about flying helicopters, making the machine part of you and an, like almost an extension of your body, where literally this machine, this spacecraft, is shaped like a body. That's right. So actually maneuvering it and using it as a tool, you said, to do what you need to do. That's right, and, and adapting to it is, is really the key. And when you first get in the spacesuit, you really notice the spacesuit to the point where you you, it's hard for you to notice and pay attention to other things. Yeah. And in order to be successful, 
you really need to make that space disappear and just use it as a tool to accomplish what you're doing. And, and that requires a lot of adaptation on the go, you know, because every time you get in, it might, it feels a little different, it fits a little different, you're doing a different job, you're in a different body position. Um, and so it's a constant mental challenge, but I, I find it really interesting. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I, on top of the actual practicing and, and running through your procedures to understand what to do uh, in a spacesuit, are you getting some tips and tricks from fellow astronauts? Absolutely. You know, doing spacesuits, the, the one thing that's really different about it is that, you know, in flight school, there's a new class of flight school students every two weeks, and there, you know, there's 50 students going through, and there's so many people surrounding you that have done this before. Well, you come, you come here and you learn how to work in a spacesuit, and there's only a handful of people that have done it and have done it for real in space. And most of your instructors are not, we're not necessarily getting taught formal classes by other astronauts, we're getting taught by instructors. Mm -hmm. And so you're suddenly in this environment where the people teaching you have not done what you're about to do, which creates a really interesting dynamic. And, and it's the conversations that we have within the astronaut office and with senior astronauts that have done it are some of the most critical. And you know, this isn't just uh, you know after work talk where we're sitting around telling telling stories. This is actually where we do a lot of the learning, you know. And, and people really take the time to come up to you and be and say, "Hey, you're going to learn about this in class, and you know it might seem a little strange, but this is why." And here's some tips and tricks. And and you see the the veteran astronauts show up up at the neutral buoyancy lab, you know, on, on when we have our big runs, and and they'll go over things with us. They'll talk to us about it. And so those conversations that we have with the, with the flown astronauts are really critical. Yeah. Definitely. How about um, traveling a lot too? I'm sure that's a huge part of your training is going over and learning the Soyuz systems. Yes, when we go over to Russia, it's uh, you know we're we are learning the Soyuz. We're launching from Kazakhstan, and that's a whole new vehicle. Uh, and I, f I feel a little bit lucky in that I have a background in walking up to a new aircraft and learning all the systems and right. understanding what's important and what's not. But then you throw in the language, you know, we're learning all of that in Russian and, and the communication language is in Russian. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a really unique language. I feel very privileged to be able to fly in the Soyuz. It's a, you know, it's this, this is the same vehicle that they've been flying since the 60s. Yeah. And to have that opportunity, and sometimes you just sit there and you think, you know, you're learning all these systems and you're, you know, you're trying to figure out the perfect timing of a procedure that you're running. And then all of a sudden you look around and you think, I'm flying with a Canadian whose first language is, is French and I'm flying with a Russian whose first language is Russian. And my first language is English and I'm from America. And we are all three sitting in this little Soyuz spacecraft that was designed in the 60s and we're going to launch from the middle of Kazakhstan. <laughs> you know, and it's, you're just like, wow, nobody gets this opportunity. I mean, this is, it's just incredible. It's like a realization of where am I? It is <laughs> incredible. That's right. So you're launching with David St. Jacques and Oleg Kononyenko, That's right? right. I'm guessing you've gotten to know them pretty well. Very well. Very um, well. Good pair to be launching with. Them. Yes, we we uh, we have hit a stride with the three of us. That uh, you know, when we're not around each other, we train around each other so much that uh, when we're in different countries or in different places, we're constantly texting and sending <laughs> pictures. And you know, it's it's they're kind of my right and left arm at this point. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's kind of a awesome realization to be in the same spacecraft with all of these different disciplines, all of these different backgrounds, with unique stories coming to one place and accomplishing one thing. Um, I'm guessing this is a larger part of the International Space Station and what it is and what you're about to launch to do um, and understand that responsibility. Is that, is that kind of how you feel about International Space Station going up there? It, it definitely is one of the unique aspects and I think we, we get asked a lot about the different cultures and um, you know, coming together and our different backgrounds. But quite honestly, what struck me is working with Oleg and David, I have more in common with them than I do with most anybody I've ever worked with. Really? 
And, and we talk about this, you know, we come from three different places. We have three very different backgrounds. Oleg's an engineer. David Kim from, is a medical field. He's a doctor. And I am a test pilot. And we're from three different places and three different sides of the planet. And when we get together, our, the things that stress us are the same. The things we're looking forward to are the same. The things that drive us are the same. And things like language and, and what you would picture as culture are really such a small part of who a person is. And what we realize is that that other 85% of each of us are, are so alike. You know, we really were kind of uh, from the same mold, even though we grew up in different places and different times. And so it's, you know, they're, they're more like family. Uh, we, we we're really close and, and that's really common a lot among all the astronauts that you meet from different countries. There's just a common kinship, a common culture amongst us. Yeah, it's like the International Space Station has its own culture, its own way of doing things, and it doesn't matter where you're coming from. When you're there, you're there for the same reasons, doing the same things, that's and right. speaking the same language. That's right, and even preparing to go. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's a, just a really unique experience flying all over the world in different countries and training, and, and the only people that can even relate to that experience are the other people doing it, no matter where they're from. Yeah. So you're launching here in December, and I have been over to Baikonur in last December for Mm -hmm. the first time. It was my first time there, and it was bitter cold. I'm sure that you've been warned about how cold it's going to be. We have been warned about it, and uh, (laughs) we had some good crew bonding trying to pick out winter jackets that we all like, so uh, we finally found one, but it took a lot of months. (laughs) Well, well, after that, you get to go to the balmy 72-degree International Space Station. What are you looking forward to most in in your long stay there? I think the first thing I'm going to do when I get there is just look out the window, look back at Earth. And, um, you know, a lot of the astronauts that have been there say that, you know, we have a cupola window that's on the bottom of the space station. It's like a bay window. You can look back at Earth and get 360 view of of Earth. And uh, people say, you know, you've looked at pictures, you've looked at videos, you've heard people talk about it, and there's absolutely nothing that can prepare you for looking out that window. And once you look out that window, you truly are never going to be the same. Yeah. And... uh, that's going to be one of the first things I go do. Yeah, I definitely hear that a lot. It's like that overview effect, uh, just to understand, look down and say, wow, I'm this high, and I could see all of this. Mm-hmm. And look at that thin line that's yeah. uh, separating the everything from down there from all of that nothing up there. Pretty yeah. crazy. It's pretty amazing. And when you think about it, you know, the International Space Station is only 250 miles up. Right. So if you got in your car and you drove, you'd be there in four hours. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's really not that far away physically yeah uh but you know it 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 lends this perspective because you're out of the atmosphere and you realize how thin our atmosphere is and how you know how our earth is just perfectly formulated for human life but that doesn't stretch out that far yeah but it's a it's a unique way to live on the space station there's a lot of fun stuff that you're going to do was there any was there any trick that uh, astronaut told you like make sure you remember this or make sure you know whenever you're doing this make sure you have this oh there's 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 so many there's so much <laughs> we call it gouge there's so much gouge, gouge. Uh, that we pass each other and uh, on as far as what to do and okay um you know, and but the, but the bottom line, everyone says, look, for the first few days, you're just going to be like a kid learning how to walk again. You're going to run uh, into walls. You're going to drop a pencil, and you're going to turn around. You're not going to know where it is because you will have shifted 90 degrees, and you, your body doesn't really understand that the pencil's no longer to your right. Now it's above you. And <laughs> and they said, you're, you just get used to it. It's foggy, and uh, you'll make it through. And after about a week, you'll be all right. Yeah, and I think you might be a little bit better than, than most, maybe, I'm assuming, just because of your the way that you're career has been is 
launching yourself into new things and just learning it? Yeah, yes and no. So I'll say, oh, okay. uh, you know, mentally, I, th I know how to approach it and, and just kind of be prepared for the for the unknown. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what's interesting is that physically, there's really no correlation between what people have done in the past versus how they are on station. You know, mm -hmm. as far, you know, we talk about nausea a lot, you know, yeah. some people get nauseous and some people don't. And you would think, okay, well, I bet the t test pilots that tumble and do all these loops and all these aerobatic maneuvers, they probably don't get as, as, as sick. But that's actually not true. It's really genetics um, huh. and, and how you are made up, and there's no predicting it. So um, I don't know if I'm going to be one of those nauseous people or if I'm going to be one of those people that get off, you know, the, the vehicle and, and, and be okay. And uh, <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Well, I cannot wait. I think it's going to be a very exciting mission. So, Anne, thank you so much for spending this, uh, this few minutes with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Colonel Anne McLean and got her story right before her launch. Anne McLean is on social media. You can follow her on Twitter, at AstroAnimal. Animal has two N's in it because her name's Anne Animal. And Astro Animal. Okay, uh, nasa.gov slash ISS is also where you can find the latest updates on what's going on aboard the International Space Station and follow along as Anne completes hundreds of experiments during her time in space. We'll also be telling those stories on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on the International Space Station accounts. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those accounts, submit an idea for the show, and make sure to mention it's for Houston We Have a Podcast, and we will answer it here. So this episode was recorded on October 4th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, John Stoll, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, John Streeter, and Brandy Dean. Thanks again to Colonel Ann McLean for coming on the show. Godspeed. We'll be back next week.